Welcome to Unstructured Unlocked, a podcast where listeners discover how enterprise data and automation leaders are solving their most complex unstructured data challenges. I'm your host, Chris Wells. Welcome to this episode of Unstructured Unlocked. I'm your host, Chris Wells, uh, VP of Research and Development at Indico Data. And today I'm really excited to be joined by Menno Hellis. Menno, how are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me, uh, Chris. It's really, um, you know, uh, welcome for you to have me on this show. And I'm uh, really excited to share some of my experiences and thoughts on, on data and unstructured data. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Thanks for taking out the time. Um, Let's start with a few, uh, you know, who are you, what do you work on types of questions. Does that sound good? Sure, yeah. Um, so I'm a digital transformation expert. I started my career with a fintech company called RS Market Technology, which is kind of the equivalent of Bloomberg um, in Australia and New Zealand, uh, but then moved on to spend um, the biggest chunk of my career in fund administration uh, within the domain of okay data management, uh, digital transformation, business process management. Um, I then moved into manual life um, to work on a similar capacity, focusing on digitizations for, for operations. And I continue to work as an advisor um, and a consultant to financial services that are trying to really get, um, get around the, some of the data challenges, um, specifically yeah. document management and business process management. Great. So you've seen the data analytics and automation space from all sides, it sounds like. Right. Probably more than I would like to, but um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, I want to I dig into a, a lot of that, of course, but mm -hmm. um, let's talk about, let's start really high level and um, talk to me a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of what I would call the mandate for the automation center of excellence in the industry today. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned center of excellence because that is a step zero when it comes to any kind yeah. of automation. Because I think, you know, in my experience, I've seen various arrangements, uh, but the simplest and most successful is to start with a center of excellence, um, basically bringing together a group of cross-functional um, talent um, and uh, giving them a sense of purpose and rallying them and as a driving force uh, to do something and solve a problem within the organization, such as, for example, an automation, process automation, uh, digital transformation. And it has to be kind of sort of layered within an overall, um, you know, strategy as far as, you know, if you think about it, digital transformation, uh, business architecture, and then you have this capability that's called the center of excellence as a process um, automation. So, so the, the key step or step zero is to create that center of excellence. Yep. Um, you mentioned digital transformation, which is one of those buzzwords. And it's been a buzzword for, I don't know, probably about a decade now, at least. Yeah. Where, where do you think, uh, especially in the financial services vertical, where do you think we are on that like industry journey to digital transformation? Uh, so I think we've, there's, there's been a lot of progress um, that has been made over the last 10 years, I would say. Um, but then I think what's happening, there's a lot of, a lot more cha challenges and a lot more scope is being defined, especially, you know, in space where I am, wealth management and both retail and social, um, a lot of things are being disrupted. Uh, there's changes in demographics, there's changes in technology, there's changes in um, customer needs. And that's opening up more and more uh, challenges and opportunities for digital transformation. Um, but that said, I think, you know, in parallel, the advance of technology, 
um, has done uh, has done well, and therefore there's, there's there's tremendous growth happening in digital transformation. But where I see it right now, I think it's a it's a core strategy of any company and any organization that's trying to be client centric. Uh, you have to have it um, as part of your uh, corporate strategy. You have to have it as part of your operational strategy, and it has to be part of the culture um, for it to be really solid and be foundational. Yeah, no, that, that makes a ton of sense. Uh, rising interest rates and inflation would have nothing to do with any of that, I guess, right? No, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it probably will make uh, the the cost of talent because this is, you know, uh, this is an area where, you know, digital transformation, uh, especially if you're looking for, let's say, analytics, scientists, um, software engineers, um, those are going to cost more because there'll be wage pressure. But, you know, yeah. from an overall, it has nothing to do with it, it seems. But obviously, you know, it does impact because whichever program you're running, whether it be it's a regulatory or digital transformation, it's the people yeah. that make the difference. And those yeah. people are under pressure now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, you mentioned challenges, and I definitely want to hit that. Uh, but uh, for a moment, let's drill, to, drill down to the COE a little bit more. Um, cool. You talked about uh, business strategy and then architecture and then the COE sits under that. So, mm -hmm. and that often means relationships with a lot of departments throughout the company for the COE to manage. What have you seen uh, work really well and work really poorly in terms of the way the COE uh, interfaces with business units? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, I think you, you know, so setting up the COE is the easy part. Um, okay. You know, the maintaining it, setting up a proper governance for it um, and a roadmap and clearly defining the roles and responsibilities um, is the tricky part, you know, and, and evolving it so that it's a continuous improvement uh, because, you know, at the end of the day, this particular shared service or CE is working with emerging technologies. Um, it's also working with um, emerging problems that are being defined. Like we're not trying to solve accounting problems, you know, that have been around for a long time where we've had decades, you know, to figure out what the uh, standard operating procedures. Most of the problems that are being brought forward to us are problems that have not been solved um, before or not, you know, solved for a long time. And therefore there needs to be a, a, uh, a culture and a mindset of learning so that as the CUE does one project or does one process automations, there's reflection, it can learn how to do this better next time, uh, faster, mm. maybe more cost-effectively. Uh, so that's that's a, an important um, element of that CUE because you can set up the structure, but then the structure isn't really, it's very static. It's not learning. Um, it's not really evolving to adapt with the changing uh, business needs, uh, yeah. especially, for example, in spaces that are changing rapidly, like let's say retail um, or media or, um, you okay. know, or wealth management. Um, or something it's you know regulatory changing uh, quite fast. Um, the COE needs to evolve so that it can it can it can align its practices, processes, and frameworks um, to continue to manage those changes. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. Is that RPA has been around for I don't know itself almost a decade now, right? And that's mm -hmm. that's one obviously important tool in a COE for automation, but the tools are still growing and and uh, changing, and there are lots of new entrants to the market all the time. Um, For sure, yeah. Um, the organizational is setup is, is important, uh, and you bring up a very good aspect of it. Um, I think organization, like I said, it needs to be um, open for learning, uh, experimentation. Mm. 
it has to have the right mindset and attitude, but also from a technology, like you mentioned, you know, there's there's always a flavor of the month, right? Um, yeah. It could be IPA now, it could be analytics visualization. It's important to have a tech stack that is continuously being, um, you know, examined. Is this the right tech stack? Um, and look for tech stack that's open architecture that allows you to, to scale and switch if you see that there is a different and a better technology out there that can better better match your needs. Yeah, I. A lot of the platforms out there sell themselves as, oh, this is it. You just need this tool. And you said tech stack, which makes me really happy because you really do need a, a tech stack for automation. There's right. no one tool that does everything. Hundred percent. Yeah. 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 That's great. Um, so looking at it from the other side now, in terms of uh, the business units, what do you mm -hmm. see business units do wrong most often in the way that they interface with the COE? Um, so I think they uh, a lot of the um, a lot of the mistakes that I've seen and the challenges that um, they uh, expect that this is a something that can be achieved fairly quickly um, and um, and, the, and 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 that there's a lot of tools out there and I think you know they <clears throat> they've seen a lot of you know buzzwords and talks about technology can do a lot of things um, and I've worked with a platforms that are described as low code and no code. And they make a lot of promises as far as, well, you don't really need um, technology. You don't really need um, software engineers. This is just a point and click and drag and drop. Um, you can get your operation hours to build end-to-end -end applications or, in, or enterprise applications. And that actually, um, unfortunately, has created some kind of, uh, you know, false hopes, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah. So. Totally. The business leaders um, now expect that things can happen fairly quick and expect that things um, can be developed. Application delivery is going to cost them a fraction of what you used to because apparently, you know, everybody is an app developer um, these days, right? And in my experience, that yeah. is a very dangerous assumption to make because if you want to build an enterprise application, if you want to solve for automation end-to-end, -end, uh, you need technology partnerships. Uh, especially for critical elements like security, performance, right? Uh, there is a, a portion of application delivery that can no doubt be delivered by what we call the citizen developer, um, yeah. which is your operation analysts that have been upskilled to do the UI, to do maybe the business rules. Uh, but the biggest chunk of the work, um, it will continue to be delivered by professionally trained uh, technical expertise, right? Um, so that's one aspect, the cost and what it, what it takes to develop an application or process automation. Yep. The other aspect, of course, is, you know, especially in the space of document management and unstructured data, um, and you're dealing with, let's say, volumes of forms that are, you know, paper forms, um, it's the, the, solution out th the solutions out there are amazing, but they need to be trained. Um, they're no different than yep. your, you know, your processes, right? Just like when you're onboarding an employee, you need to train them. Um, and yeah. you need to supervise them, right? And you need to give them good examples and bad examples so that they know what to do uh, the next time. The technology is no different. Um, it needs time yeah. to learn uh, what it needs to do. Um, and, and I think that hasn't gone down uh, well. It hasn't been explained well, I should say, to the business. Yeah. Um, I think people expect that from deployment day that this knows how to do everything. Yeah. No, I, I'll, I'll say for my own part, at Indico, you know, we work with unstructured data and automations. And for a mm -hmm. long time, our marketing looked a lot like the RPA vendors marketing. And so 
part of that was because we wanted to sound familiar, but it was, you know, a blessing and a curse in that, you know, we're not RPA and they're very different things. Um, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then and, and RPA is a great example where I think um, a lot have, have been misled in the sense that I've seen many organizations and operations heads where for a long time they measured their success when it came to RPAs or how many bots are out there actively work. Um, yeah. But, but, but at the end of the day, uh, what are they doing, right? Um, and yeah. are, they, are they fully utilized, right? Um, if, you have, yeah. if you have a bot that's running, um, you know, a, an end of day process or start of day process um, that just runs one hour at the start of the day and one hour at the end of the day, right? Yeah. Is a really efficient bot, right? Um, you have to think of them as a, as a virtual agent, right? Or as a, or as a yeah. digital worker, right? You're paying for it. And the yeah. cost from my experience is not much less than an offshore resource, right? And, and, and you have to ask yourself, does it really matter if you're running um, you know, 2,000 bots, um, if each one of them is running at a capacity of 10% or 5%, yeah. right? So the utilization is more important. And a similar, you know, similar errors or similar, I think, um, you know, nuances are happening in other technologies, whether it be it um, document management or OCR or ICR. I think people can easily make the wrong um, you know, assumptions or use the wrong metrics so as a, as a business leader, you really have to know what are you trying to accomplish um, and yeah. have your objectives clear from the start and metrics clear from the start so they know whether you have a strong business case or not. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. I, I see it all the time, both in business units and in COEs, where there isn't a clearly defined return on investment that they're trying mm -hmm. to get out of their bots or their automations or workflows or whatever you want to call it. And so... You know, they default to, like you mentioned, right? Like it's easy to measure the number of Boston production. So you default to stuff that's easy to measure like accuracy, but accuracy doesn't tell you how much money you're saving or how much capacity you've created, right? right? It's, it's table stakes. You have to be accurate. Um, right. So uh, that, that raises, I was going to save this hot potato for closer to the end, but mm. you know, I'll just ask it. Uh, has RPA in, in your opinion, delivered on its promises? You know, you mentioned the citizen developer thing. And of course, there are armies of RPA developers now. Has, has RPA delivered? Uh, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's one of those questions where it really depends on mm. where you've deployed your RPA and what is your tech strategy, right? So like you pointed out, right? You, you cannot, there's, there isn't really, you know, there, or there are many, you know, platforms that are just uh, one place or one-stop shop where you can do everything, right? So if you're deploying RPA as, um, you know, part of a combination or a, a tech stack, right, that you have for, let's say, to address the here and now, um, because that's where RPA originally came. Uh, it originally came about because there is, um, there's a long time to wait and um, for the long-term solution, right? So to give you an example from the experiences of the problems that I've solved, right, we might be building a digital pool so that we have a first, you know, digital intake for all of our um, account maintenance and services, yep. right? But that's going to take a long time because once, you once you're dealing with external users, right, then you have to engage uh, risk, marketing, customer experience, right, and a multitude of stakeholders. Um, and it's a larger project that's going to take a long time. But then what do you do with the here and now? Right. How do you how do you address the people that are wallowing in pain, addressing yeah. the the problems that are coming out of the current solution, which is, you know, it's legacy, um, it's manual, um, it's it's you know, 
laborious. So that's how RBA came came about. It it solved that problem because it it basically mimics um, the actions of human beings going into an application record keeping system, putting the buttons and so on, as a tactical solution until the strategic solution is being built. Um, and I've seen you know RBA gone wrong where people have used RPA for a strategic solution, right? Oh, yeah. they've they've used it in tactical ways um, where it didn't make complete sense, um, or they've used it as to do everything from A to Z, right? And you really need to use it to more of a specific, um, pointed problem, um, and to address what I just described instead of just, well, I can I can use RPA for visualization, I can use it for reporting, and I can use it for reconciliation. That doesn't make sense, right? Yeah. You have to have really specific purpose for what you're using RPA. You have to have proper governance to make sure that before you're provisioning any bots, right, you really have an idea how they're going to be utilized. Oh, yeah. The process that we're going to be doing. Um, you have to have the proper uh, risk uh, controls and balances in place because, you know, I've been in situations where, you know, uh, bots were basically transferring data uh, for the bank and insurance, for example, or transferring data from you know, Canada to the US and there's data residency, you know, regulations that are yeah. being, right. So you, you kind of have to really be careful, you know, about all these things and make sure that it's deployed um, in the correct and in the proper way. So it it has a good, good promises. Um, it can yield benefits for sure if used correctly. Yeah. I I really like the point you make about governance. I it's not a surprise that you're making it coming out of insurance and banking, but mm -hmm. um I, I think that's one of the biggest hidden costs of automation platforms is when folks get into this and they say, oh, well, I'm just going to, you know, I'll build a bot and it'll do A, B, and C. Well, who's going to make sure down the road nine months from now that it did A, B, and C the right way on right. this day at this time, right? You have to, mm -hmm. it has to be auditable. Right. Yeah. You have to treat, especially when it comes to RBA, maybe other technologies, not so much, but because the nature of our RPA, they mimic of human actions. It's basically yeah. just another um, user that you're onboarding. So you have to go to the user account, you have to provision them what they can access, what they can't access. Now they are no different at the end of the day. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Should think about them the same way. Um, all right. We've covered a, like some really broad stuff. Let's, let's zoom in on you a little bit, Menno. And why don't you tell me about um, maybe your personal philosophy or process for finding the best candidates for project or sorry, for process automation? Sure. Um, so, so I think, you know, when, when you're dealing with, um, so once you have a CAE, which is important, so the organization setup is, like I said, is, is step zero, um, you know, and I think, you know, the talent that you bring in, the mindset, the attitudes is also important. Then you go into the execution part, which is, you know, how do we find those, you know, good opportunities that can yield, you know, good, good value. And what you need to, to, to accomplish that is more of a standardized approach and a methodology. Uh, that can help your organization, you know, evaluate and prioritize those opportunities. So, so when you have this in place, uh, you'll be able to quickly establish and utilize, let's say, a defined set of criteria um, that yeah. you, you can use to determine which processes are good candidates, uh, which for automation, and then you can evaluate those candidates to measure their potential benefits, if that, if that makes sense. Um, what what I've used in the past is um, a simple, um, and, it, and I think you know keeping it simple would help for practical reasons and for um, efficiency purposes. Yep. To, to find the fit, um, you know, you have to recognize that not all processes are created equal. 
um, and, and good candidates um, share some common characteristics, what I would call. So when you identify those opportunities for automation, typically you look for ones that require manual interaction with one or more IT systems or applications, okay. uh, that they are uh, repetitive in nature, um, that they occur with significant uh, frequency, for example, and that, you know, as much as possible, they include logic and rule-based. Um, so there isn't, there isn't really a lot yep. of human judgment. Um, and maybe, although that again, the technology is advancing, um, but you know, if you if you want to maximize the benefit, you definitely want to look for something that's logic and rule-based, and that it's prone to human error. Um, so if there's a lot of dexterity and manual, interesting. You know what I mean? Um, and and. If it can be performed after hours, if there's a flexibility when it can be performed, that's these are you know additional pluses, and it's time consuming to perform, right? So those those yeah. are typically uh, you know uh, criteria that you you look for, and when you're qualifying the opportunities, so once you look at all these kind of sort of artifacts that you've collected, you can map in in what well I used to have some kind of an automation heat map, um, to yeah, process automation heat map. And we use kind of similar quadrant, you know, if you're familiar with the Gartner, you know, four quadrants. Yep. Um, so we'd have the, the bottom left quadrant is the lowest priority candidates. And those are ones basically they're, they're high in complexity and low in value, um, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah. And then the opposite quadrant, which is the top right quadrant, is the highest priority candidates. So those are basically, they're high in value and low in complexity. Um, so if you have, for example, let's say an invoice processing process, um, that is, it's significant in terms of volume. It's significant in terms of frequency. Um, yet it's valuable because if you don't attend to your invoices, then you're basically leaving money on the table, right? Um, yeah. That would be that should be in your top, you know, right quadrant because that that's that's one of the, your yeah. highest priorities, right? And then the the other two quadrants that are basically the the top on the on the left and the bottom on the right. These are the medium priority. Either they are high value but then high complexity or low value or low complexity, if that makes sense. Um, so if you just kind of sort of collect these artifacts and then map them into the various quadrants, that gives you kind of sort of a visual um, um, way to immediately figure out which ones you need to hit first, if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh yeah, and you've got your roadmap, right? Work from the right. top right and then hit the other quadrants until you get to nothing left worth automating. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't think, so you don't, you don't want to complicate it um, and go beyond that kind of simplicity. I've seen different versions of, you know, automation heat maps, um, and you can have different criteria. It doesn't have to be this, but as long as it's something that you know for sure that can guarantee that you're selecting um, the top, you know, opportunities first, right? And and um, you know, it's something that's repeatable, you know, uh, procedural, yep. basically. Then that that can function, right? But if you complicate it too much, where you're spending so much time to try and figure out which processes. Other yeah. ones to, then that's that's basically you know time valuable time that's being lost absolutely yeah that that and that analysis is probably the most expensive part of the process um, right in getting there uh one thing you mentioned very specific i wanted to drill into why why do you see it as a an additional value that the process can run after hours well because you know it what I, what I meant is that it can run anytime. So sometimes ah. the processes run during the time where basically you have capital markets uh, running processes and, you know, things like it can, it can easily get in the way. Um, and um, if, you can, if you can run it after hours, then that means basically if, if the process runs into exceptions, it can be attended by a low cost or offshore team um, in a different location. 
Um, I think what I meant is flexibility when it can run, not necessarily that it can run after hours. Um, you know, if, if, if your process must run, let's say at 1 p.m., which a lot of them, for example, are on 9 a.m. Or, or 8 a.m. for a start of day report, for example, then yep. you're gonna have less flexibility, for example, than if you can run this process anytime, right? Um, there's also cost savings because, you know, if your if your if all your processes, you know, for example, have to run at eight o'clock in the morning, um, as an example, right? Well, then then your bot um, army, if let's say you're using RPA, they're not going to be multi-threaded. You're going to have to provision another bot. Yeah. Right? Yep. Whereas if you have flexibility, right, then you can just use the same bot, but now you're getting better utilization from that same bot. Right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So cost reduction and de-risking, essentially. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That makes total sense. That's great. Um, this is going to sound like a job interview question. It's not. But uh, as you think back over your career, both being hands on keyboard and then in a leadership role in automation and automation COEs, tell me about the project that was maybe most satisfying that you're most proud of in terms of, you know, what you automated and what came out of it and the impact of the business. Sure. Yeah. I think um, the... I mean, the one that meant the most to me because I've seen the biggest impact uh, was a workflow solution that we built for a, a large accounting team, uh, well over a thousand. Um, wow. And we ended up, you know, uh, yielding a 120 headcount reduction um, out of that and with much better scale, I think 300% um, scale. So, you know, and this is in a securities industries where you had the trade yeah. life cycle and, um, if you're familiar with it, the securities industries, um, they, they really work uh, as part of a life cycle. You have the trade capture. Um, so this is the trade from the, let's say, the broker or the counterparties. So the trade capture, the, the trades are captured, and then they go to the book of records. Um, and then there's a pricing team that has to price those trades and, and positions. And then there's a reconciliation team, uh, which is basically a team that is going to reconcile what the client said that they've traded versus what the broker said that they've traded on their behalf. Uh -huh the clearing yep. right so basically matching the two different stories and and uh looking at the exceptions to see are these legitimate exceptions or just data anomalies um yep. and then the accounting team once everything is priced and reconciled comes in and has to um, do the uh, net asset valuation um before handing it off to the investor uh, reporting who report to the investors um, for those funds so so it's basically an orchestration of activities um, across what back then was uh, a very siloed um, setup where every organization has, has its own technologies, had its own processes. And then when it finished its task, it relied on emails um, and chats to let the other group know that, hey, I'm done for this particular fund, I'm done for this particular um, mm. you know, group and, and so on. And it was very client-centric, um, if that makes sense. So, for example, it the does. accounting yeah. team with this fund um, did, you know, all the accounting um, for this particular for this particular fund. So, the first thing that we did was to actually reorganize the workforce and functionalize the team such that, you know, to, you know, no longer be an a client-centric team. Not, I shouldn't say client-centric, client, you know, focused or set-up team in the sense that there's no reason for a team to do a to Z for client A. Instead, why don't we just have a team that does all the listed instruments or all the, for example, the Morgan Stanley um, yeah. you know, trades and another team that does all the Goldman Sachs trades for, 
for all for all the clients. So instead of you doing A to Z for one client, no, you just do you know everything um, to do with Morgan Stanley for all the clients, uh, as an example. So yeah. that's functionalization, and this is more of a, a different part of my mandate that I manage, which is more of a process design, process simplification, um, introducing process re-engineering and lean before we do any automation or transformation, right? Because you can you can yeah. reap a lot of benefits by simplifying the process before you automate. And once we've done that, um, what we did was we created a, an intelligent workflow um, that was driven by the movement of the underlying data. Um, such that okay. it, it detected from the systems if a specific you know, trade or position has been priced, it then it would, it would automatically alert the next uh, group in the activity um, uh, that, hey, your task is now up and, and you know, it can, it can, it's ready for you to be, to be done. And, and it intelligently managed the workflow across the global team of 1,000 plus um, accountants and operation analysts um, in, a multiple, in multiple regions, right? And when I say intelligently, because what it did is it figured out who is the next who's the next best person to work on the next task based on legibility, based on the, the type of data and so on. Um, and that that transformation was phenomenal uh, because you know you no longer have people um, huddling in, in rooms to figure out, okay, what are we gonna do today? What's our resourcing strategy capacity? And even more so, um, you know, the highlight of how impactful it was is that. Whenever, whenever we've had typhoons in Manila, we've had, for example, uh, resource center in Manila offshore, uh, it would be more of a disaster recovery. We were trying to figure out all the directors. Mm. How, do we, how do we manage the workload, right? And transfer yep. it back to the um, other locations, whether it be in Europe or North America. What that workflow intelligence automation solution did is that it automatically figured out based on who's online, how to reallocate those tasks. Wow. to various members um, in other locations, um, again, based on eligibility, based on skill set, and so on. Uh, so all that headache and overhead management that you know, used to be in place to figure out you know, how to respond to specific you know, uh, BCP situation, business continuity um, yep. situation, right, is gone. Um, and, and this is just a, the icing on the cake, right? On top of the, the cost reductions, the scale, and the process improvement that it brought. That sounds like an incredible project. That must have been a lot of fun to work on. Oh yeah, I mean, it, it was challenging. Um, I think yeah. you know it was you know it was it was quite difficult to um, absorb because I'm not a fan of bowl the ocean, and then this seems like it's yeah. trying to bowl the ocean, right? Because that's nah, big, yeah. Right, um, and it's very you know it it impacted many stakeholders, many many function groups, right? Uh, but we managed to get it off the ground because we kind of sort of used agile. Um, practices incrementally building piece by piece incorporating one more function one more function at a time um, but at, at the end when you when you step back and look at it right we did kind of build the ocean from an impact yeah. to that organization no, yeah. yeah yeah absolutely no that's incredible uh, i wanted to i wanted to pull a couple of threads one um i really love that you mentioned the fact that you sort of slowed down and said are are we automating the right process, right? And and mm -hmm. you took the opportunity to re-engineer the process before memorializing it in an army of bots and software. Um, I see people not doing that constantly, and it's a real missed opportunity. Hundred percent, yeah. I think, um, and and you find, um, you know, I think uh, out there there's kind of a philosophical debate whether it's you do. You, 
simplify it and fix it first before you automate it. Yeah. But you just go ahead and automate, right? I mean, I've met many colleagues who basically say, oh, wow, why waste time, you know, incorporating Lean and Six Sigma where you can just automate the hell out of it, right? Um, and, and get over and done with it. Uh, yeah. I, I tend to be more procedural when it comes to this. I, I cannot, you know, uh, bring myself to automate something if I have a, you know, a gut feeling that some of these activities are not even necessary to begin with, right? Uh, yeah. I, I just like to be basically follow kind of a, a method where I look at the process end to end, simplify it, uh, make sure that it's relevant, uh, make sure that um, it, all of it adds value, right? Yeah. Um, and then you can go ahead and automate it. Yeah. You're, you're going to have far fewer headaches down the road managing the bots. To your point, the bots are just workers. They happen to be electronic workers, but they're workers. Right. And if you have a bad process, you're going to have a bad management experience with the bots. It's going to happen for sure. 100%, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other thread I wanted to pull is that one thing that we see over and over again when you know we'll build an unstructured data-based workflow, and often these workflows still have a human in the loop somewhere, Mm -hmm. What we see over and over again is just the increase in job satisfaction for the human worker because they're not doing the laborious stuff as, you know, 95% of their job anymore. They're doing error handling and decision making and, and more strategic thinking. How did that play out in the sort of the big workflow uh, process that you automated that you discussed? Yeah, I mean, you bring up a very important uh, point and, and, uh, and, I would say that this alone is actually competing with customer experience, which is employee experience, right? Interesting. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I've seen I've seen a lot of trends, you know, happening in Salesforce. What are the drivers behind digital transformation? Why are we doing this, right? And you know, where it started with me is always about focused on you know revenue generation, customer. But mm -hmm. more, more recently, I think um, I think it's now almost equal um, customer experience and employee experience, right? Because you know if your, you know, your job as a CEO and the head of operation is to take care of your own, you know, employees. Um, they yeah. then, you know, in return, take care of your own clients, right? Yeah, uh, that's so right. It, 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 it kind of works that way. Um, and and the more satisfied they are, uh, the more engaged they are, um, and the more that they're willing to spend more valuable time, right, you know, curating um, your, your, your clients and helping them basically look for opportunities, upselling and so on. So that, that is very uh, crucial. Um, and, you know, in my experience, it, it does tend to, you know, uh, increase productivity, loyalty to the company. And, and I think overall, the company's output is, is improved. Um, in my experience with that, you know, workflow solution, enterprise workflow solution that we built, um, you know, we've seen turnover rates um drastically yeah. reduced um, yeah we've you know we've seen um people that basically have improved um their skill set uh, before you know never mind that they're now have more time to direct it to like you said to more strategic to decision making and and high value work but you know some of them are now able to leave on time to go to their you yeah. know son's soccer match or daughter's basketball match right these are these yeah. are these are also wins right uh, how they yep. feel about their job, right? That we've we've improved their life, not just their actual what they do with job, but they can actually because a lot of them were staying over time. Um, if you're doing stuff manually, yep. if you're doing, you know, a lot of processing, um, you're you're tired, you're exhausted. Um, it does impact your work-life balance. It does impact your how you think about your, you know, your career and so on. 
So I, I've seen that transformation happen firsthand. And I can tell you that it does make a lot of difference. Yeah, no, that's that's great to hear. I, I, I think there's been a lot of fear in the market about the bots replacing humans, but the bots really are just replacing humans doing things that humans probably don't need to be doing. That's been my experience. Or can't keep up, right? Yeah, or can't keep up with Because, yeah. you know, like if you, look, if you look at the the realities, there's more and more data being pumped, right, into the yeah. systems, right? And um, we just cannot keep up. Um, you know, I mean, yeah. if you look at unstructured data as an example, which is requires a lot of work to to access, never mind process, just to access, right? Yeah. Um, there's just not a, not enough, you know, human resources to, to do that, right? And it's increasing sure. because, you know, previously, you know, we traditionally looked at documents only, um, but any kind of wealth management firm, any kind of financial service firm is yep. now trying to look at the 360 view of their customers, whether it be retail institutional, Absolutely. Right? which includes things like email, uh, video, um, you know, uh, text, right? All sorts of information needs to be captured, right? I just don't see how you can have your uh, human resources um, manage all that complexity. It's absolutely no, no, you can't. You can't. You're right. That which is, this is a great transition. So, you mentioned unstructured data. We've talked about it a few times. Give me your personal the Menno Hellis definition of unstructured data. How do you explain this to people? Uh, so, I mean, the way I see it is that it's it's qualitative data. It's it's data that is mm. not. Um, you know, it, it cannot be processed or analyzed uh, by conventional data tools. Um, it's stuff like I mentioned, like emails, uh, social media, uh, web pages, uh, or even customer feedback um, from chatbots and so on. Uh, it can be images. And when I say images, um, you know, it can be uh, PDF scanned documents. For example, these are, you know, images, audio, video. And and those are very challenging because this type of data is, is um, it's raw. It's very unorganized, right? Yeah. It, it cannot be processed, like I said, with your conventional technology or tools. And in most cases, it ends up being inaccessible, right? Um, it just gets stored in its raw format. Um, and, and from a regulatory point of view, for risk, I'm very nervous about this because they don't know what kind of data is, is there, right? Yeah, what's and in there, right? What's in yeah. there, right? Pandora's and the regulations, box. right? Most of the regulatory bodies, they don't really care how your the format of your data is. The regulations apply to every data that you get, and it's kind of your own problem to figure out right? yeah. how to access it and figure out does it have classified information. Um, how do I how do I figure out right who can access it right? Who should access this data if I don't know what the data yeah. is right? I can't read, yeah. I, can't, I can't process it. So so that's kind of sort of what we mean by unstructured um, data. It's it's the the format and you know the the way that it gets stored. Um, and the challenges that it brings to organizations in terms of provisioning, access, security, uh, risk, and, you know, to a lesser extent, analytics, because, you know, mm. data is a currency, it's insights, right? Um, yeah. Most people use data for process improvement, for identifying, you know, new opportunities for the company. You can't use that data in its, in its format. You yeah. have to have a specialized tools, right, to digitize it, and then yeah. you can then look at it. Yeah, you can't uh, put PDFs in an Excel column and then run a VLOOKUP on them, can you? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. good way of putting it, yeah. Yeah, no, that, the, uh, the accessibility is one that I, I, I've seen over and over again, where it's, I, I asked questions of a client, like, how many of these documents do they have? And they couldn't even answer that question, because 
they were stored here and they were stored here and someone else owned this repository and who knows which ones were duplicates, right? Because right. things get copied around. No, that's um, so true. This is this is why actually, you know, in many organizations, they refer to unstructured data as, as dark data because it's dark. You don't mm. really see what it is, right? You don't know how much of it you have. Yeah. Right? You know? Yeah. Yeah, and, and the easy ways of measuring it, like how big is the file, that doesn't really tell you anything, right? It could be right. full of meaningless tables. Um, yeah, it, I mean, so. it might be helpful for infrastructure sizing, right? Uh, but, right. But not necessarily from operations management, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, where have you seen success with unstructured data? Uh, that's a good question. Um, so it's not, you know, all, you know, hopeless. Uh, so yeah. there, <laughs> so there, there are, you know, situations where you can, you know, uh, employ, you know, emerging technologies to, to access the data um, and make sense of it, uh, give it meaning, um, and you know, lessen the the time it takes to, to process and, and for folks to, let's say, get to it. And the successes that I've seen is people employing, you know, um, what we call OCR or ICR. So I've, mm -hmm. I've had experiences where I've led groups that employed um, ICR, Intelligent Character Recognition, to, to process documents uh, for account maintenance services that were basically transactions, whether it be change of address, change of beneficiary, um, and the solution worked really well as far as classifying what kind of document I'm working with, extracting that data, and then making it available to either an API or RPA, RPA mm. to then um, manipulate it and, and, and feed it into a record keeping system or downstream system. Uh, so it can be successful. It, yeah. it does require a very uh, well thought out, um, you know, uh, mapping of the different technologies at the different stages so that they can all function and work together to get to that kind of success and, and solution, um, if that makes sense. Um, but it's possible. Um, and I would say not only it's possible, it's becoming popular uh, because yeah. a lot of organizations are realizing that, you know, the, although the, the, the assumption out there is that, hey, the, the demographic is changing, right? And people are becoming more digital savvy. Um, they're ditching paper forms and, and using you know, uh, self-serve portals and so on. That's true, um, but it also at the same time, it's taken a long time and yep. you have other forms of unstructured data. You've got like, you know, now you're looking at, you know, you're, you're trying to interact with your clients in every touch point and capture the data because that's valuable yeah. information, whether it be, um, you know, emails, whether it be on YouTube, whether it be, uh, you know, video or, or um, you know, or any kind of, you know, touch point that you have in different channels. Right, that too is is unstructured. So, yeah. so the 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 percentage of unstructured data, as in as a, from from the overall data that we're getting, is actually higher. Now, right. Oh yeah. And, oh yeah. Yeah, but the traditional one, which is the documents, let's say machine type PDFs, um, or even handwritten, um, and sometimes I've seen success with, you know, cursive writing. Um, you know, you yeah. can you, you can still get um, quite, you know, quite a good solution built. Um, and you know, significant reduction in terms of effort from your processing team. Um, if you have have set it up right, you know, you spent the time to to train it, uh, to supervise it, and, and and you've used, I would say, good technology, and you partnered with somebody um, who is familiar with that technology that can help you jumpstart this. Yeah, yeah. You raise you raise a number of good points there. One one of them that I wanted to highlight was. Um, you highlighted some of the unique challenges of unstructured data. Um, and I think one of them is uh, training, 
you have to train unlike a column in a spreadsheet which sort of tells you what's in the column unstructured data you have to bring your own intelligence to it right oh. like this is what i care about in this document or this audio file or whatever it is um and so as as you've undertaken unstructured data projects how have you how have you pitched the need for training and building that intelligence in to the business uh, it's a good, that's a good question. I think um, because that's that's often missed, right? Um, yeah. As I pointed out earlier, um, you know, uh, the the nature of the technology does require training for it to be effective and highly successful. Um, but you know, people assume that it's just another technology, and most technologies don't need training. You just deploy it, and it does that's specific, right. you know, uh, specific activities, right? So if you're if you if you have, for example, a a um, you know, a network monitoring, for example, you just deploy yep. it and it starts monitoring your network, right? Um, yep. That's that's yep. what it, how it does. That's different for the um, document management and OCR and ICR, right? It, there is an expectation that you need to give it samples and train it, right? And and the way we've approached this is that um, we've you know we've explained to them that you know even the human eye can make mistakes, right? Um, so yeah. you know, like people. I, when I look at a document, uh, especially if it's handwritten, right, I can't tell somebody's, I can't tell sometimes my own wife's handwritten uh, <laughs> notes, right? And I have yeah. to phone or ask, like, what, what did you say, you know, here? So, so yeah. if that is the reality, right, why should we expect the machines, right, to, to know everything, right? You really need to sort of, you know, point out to them, you know, this yeah. name is, you know, is, is, is Smith, for example, this is John Fu, or you know, that way they know what the word John looks like next time it sees it, right? Yep. Um, and, and you know, the technology is getting better, I think, uh, but it's in your own interest to train it so that they customize it. Maybe you have- Oh, you yeah. Know, yeah, the quality of the PDFs that you're getting because every case is going to be different, right? Um, there, is, there is no, you, you cannot take a, a solution that has been trained by a different organization, right? You, yeah. you kind of have to train it based on the data that you get, based on the quality that you have to deal with, right? Yeah. Maybe the quality is determined by your own client profiles. If you're dealing with yeah. many seniors, maybe then the quality is going to be handwritten, perhaps, you know, versus if you're dealing with uh, most of your investors as uh, young investors, there might be machine type PDFs. Um, it, it varies significantly. And that's yeah. why I say that it has to be unique. It has to basically be done at your organization. It, it cannot be, you know, uh, acquired somewhere else. Uh, yeah. And and it's no different than, you know, culture. It's no different than you bring in your own. If, if you bring in somebody you onboard them, right? You train them, right? There's specific skills they expect them to have. You're asking yep. for somebody to know Python, for example. Yeah, they should know Python, right? Doesn't matter where they come from, right? But if you want them to know how things get done here, um, whether basically well, how to navigate, um, you know, the organization, um, how, how to do governance, right? That's very specific to your organization. It is. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and your people have to learn it. So, of course, the bots have to learn it, right? And so you have to teach them well. Um, exactly. Yeah, it's funny. I, I was thinking about, I have a 14-year-old daughter, and uh, I imagine at some point when she's talking to an investment manager, it's going to be Snapchat. Like, <laughs> you know, Probably, yeah. unstructured data is only going to proliferate uh, to yeah, your I mean, point and maybe it's you know, there's no chat it's just emojis and they have to figure out <laughs> you know, who knows right yeah absolutely yeah. gosh i hadn't thought of that like, 
unstructured uh, unstructured data processing for memes. That's yep. probably yeah. that's probably what's coming. Well, I mean, the the industry has to you know to evolve to meet the needs of um, yeah. folks out there, right? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's uh, I wouldn't be surprised, but um, you know I think you know I'm 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 impressed with the technology out there. I think it's catching up. Um, you know, it's there's a lot of you know smart people that are trying to solve problems, um, and I've worked with organizations such as Mass Challenge. I'm not sure if you've heard of them. Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a startup accelerator, um, and I, I've seen a lot of solutions out there that are trying to solve um, you know very unique problems to organizations. So uh, I think you know multinationals are. Uh, are now more comfortable dealing with smaller startups and boutique um, vendors. For sure. Um, that's a big change from, let's say, 10 years ago, where much of the solutions built were built from a select number of large vendors. Yep. Yeah. No, yeah. It, 10 years ago, no one gets fired for hiring like IBM Watson, right? It's a mm -hmm. household name, um, but that's changed a bit. Uh, you also raise a good point um, in that... Uh, the, the tools are catching up. And I think the market is catching up to the fact that just like with RPA and more conventional automations, there is still a place for the human in the process. Um, and, uh, you know, straight through processing on every document is, is not realistic right now. And, you know, well, maybe Tesla will eventually build fully automated cars. Uh, I think humans are going to be behind the wheel for quite a while. Um, and I think the market's realizing that with business critical processes. Yeah, no, for sure. I think, you know, if anything, uh, what what the technology I think is doing or is going to do is to really make the human loop interactions richer, if that makes sense. Yes. Uh, so to give an example, what I mean by that is that um, if, if, you're, if you're a wealth advisor, um, then, and, and, you know, you're, you're, distributor or your dealer is using technology to manage your investors, then, and you have this 360 view of your client, you can easily get an alert, right, as the advisor that your client just had a baby, for example, or their family yeah. circumstances have changed, right? Then in response, either automatically or you can decide to offer them different investments now that they have a baby, for example, right? Yeah. Maybe a family education plan. Um, just as an example, right? You couldn't you couldn't do that before the technology advances, right? If if you have, you know, like this 360 view of your client capturing every interaction, ca capturing every every change in their profile, whether they've changed their address and they moved to a different location, or their family has changed and then they have a newborn, right? Uh, you can take advantage of that um, information that's now being, you know, immediately in real time curated and given to the advisor yeah. to take advantage um, of and and use it as an opportunity to you know, further develop that, you know, relationship with their client. So I think the technology is making the human in loop interaction much more valuable, uh, much more yeah. richer than it was before, right? Absolutely. Uh, you know, another example for uh, like where I've seen, you know, it, it's probably not happening, but it's being talked a lot about if, if you know, for example, that every time the market goes down, goes down it's been going down significantly, right? Um, certain number of clients start checking their portfolio, right? Yeah. Um, you can automate basically a message to comfort them, right? Um, yeah. So, you know, to, to you know, to, to let's say you have hundreds of clients, right? So so now you can be a bit more personal, right? You, you're delivering more personalized services, right? To your clients that you weren't able to do previously. You can send a yeah. personalized message saying, look, I've checked your portfolio. Um, 
you know, don't worry, don't make any changes, right? Um, we'll, you know, stay put and then the market will catch up or something like this, yeah. whichever matches it is, right? But that is, that's, that's, you know, one of several things that you can do using technology. Yeah. Or, or it could say, hey, hey, dum dum, don't put all of your retirement in crypto, you know, for yeah, example. Exactly. <laughs> uh, this, has been, this has been great. We're coming up on about five minutes left and I don't want to take too much of your time. But I want to ask you a couple of, uh, you know, more provocative questions to close it out. Um, so th there's data, scary data out there that would suggest that less than 10% of all AI and automation initiatives get from sort of like the lab bench or development environment to production. Why do you think that is? Um, I think there's a lot of skepticism, unfortunately. Um, hmm. I think there's a lot of... Um, you know, uh, I wouldn't say fear, maybe just doubt that the technology isn't there. Um, and I think, you know, where that is true is in organizations that have had rigid structures. Um, and what I mean by mm -hmm. that is that um, there isn't really space or capacity for experimentation. They've not set up digital factories or incubation teams that can experiment with what the emerging technologies out there can do. Um, and, and those organizations, I think, are missing out on big opportunities uh, because, yeah. yeah, I think there has been, you know, maybe perhaps, you know, false promises um, in terms of AI and what it can do. There's always going to be a group of people that's promising that technology will do more than what it currently does, right? That's, yeah. that's true for everything, right? Um, you know, and not just technology, anything, whether it be um, investments, there are investment advisors who will say that, you know, your portfolio will be up 15% every year, right? And that's not going to be the case or something like this, right? But yeah. that's not to take away from the hard fact that, you know, machine learning, uh, NLP, AI, all these technologies um, have a lot to, to deliver. Um, and if, if used correctly um, and if used, um, you know, wisely, it, it, can, it can actually transform the business. Um, it can make a significant um, improvement and I think the key factors, like we talked earlier, is to really start small, um, experiment with something that you're, you're comfortable in terms of uh, failure, um, and be ready to course correct and step out if it doesn't work, right? Um, and 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 work with a work with an advisor um, and a partner. Mm. I think if you go it alone, especially if you're onboarding a technology that your in-house expertise have not had any exposure to, um, or an emerging technology that you're not familiar with it's important that you partner with an advisor and somebody who has done this before so that they can bring in lessons learned. Um, they can bring in maybe perhaps experiences from other companies, how they've done it. Um, that way you're basically increasing the likelihood of you uh, being, su being successful. Um, so that, that skepticism, unfortunately, is because, you know, it's, it's just that a lot of people are doing it and they try and dabble with experiment. But then when, when it fails, they don't say we didn't do it right. They say the technology sucks, right? Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yep. No, the, the, the idea of uh, working with a partner is just great advice. Um, yeah. There's, I think maybe five years ago, you probably had to go it alone, especially if you were trying to tackle unstructured data, but now yeah. you don't. Um, you, should, you should be talking to experts. They're out there. Right. And some of them are right here. Um, Thank so. you. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think <laughs> yeah. there are many experts out there and there are many advisors. I think what's important is that you team up with somebody that can yeah. guide you throughout the process, right? Uh, and it doesn't doesn't have to be. Doesn't have to be you know, I actually um, I'm a big fan of if you're signing up with an emerging technology, let's say a vendor, that you sign up with their professional services to yep, jumpstart. Agreed. I think that, that's helpful. Um, a lot of 
a lot of uh, folks feel that, oh, they're being taken advantage of when they're signing, let's say, statement of work. We thought we're going to be buying the software, and now we're buying the professional services. It makes sense. Um, you know, once you're comfortable, you have a mature, you have your CUE um, set up and everything, you can step away. Um, but, but don't go it alone if you're not comfortable. No, that's right. Returning to one of your earlier points, you should have a mindset that you're building a stack and right tool for the right job. And if you don't have the expertise, be honest about it. And most most of the vendors out there, including, you know, Indico Data, we want to use our professional services to enable you because ultimately we want you to have the skill set so that you can do more on the platform, right? With right. The tools. Yeah. And, I, and I think that that is, you know, in line with my experience, a lot of these, you know, SaaS-based, you know, companies, understood they make the profit from, you know, the subscription-based uh, yep. uh, revenue. So they're not really interested in the professional services. It's just that for the SaaS subscription to be successful and for you to use the product correctly, there has to be some kind of professional services to get you started, right? Get you off yeah. the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, great insight. Um, final question. I'm just going to open it up to you. What is your number one piece of advice for the COE leader out there? Um. The number one advice I would say is that um, it's it's really to uh, be keep an open mind um, about the various technologies out there. Um, make sure that is whatever the CUE does is aligned with an overall organizational strategy. Um, it yep. cannot function in its own. So that means basically it has to trickle from the top. Um, the top has to have a digital transformation strategy. Um, that is, you know, supported by a business architecture unit. And then one of those capabilities is the CUE um, that is supporting those, you know, objectives. If you, if you don't have that sponsorship, if you don't have that alignment, I think no matter what tools you bring in, no matter what talent you bring in, you're bound to fail. Um, so I can't stress enough the alignment with the organizational strategy um, and, you know, making uh, sure that you have a clear purpose and vision of what you're trying to do and it's it's aligned with the leaders that you're trying to serve, whether it be the operational leaders or the you know the chief strategy officer or the chief digital officer. There has yep. to be perfect alignment. It cannot it cannot operate as some kind of under the desk business solutions team or some kind of a you know yeah. process automation team that, that that they're basically dabbling in Python. I think those uh, uh, can create a lot of risks. They can create a lot of uh, problems. They can easily become disintegrated and distracted as they get pulled into different projects, they can have or face funding issues. Uh, so all sorts of problems can happen. But if you have that um, alignment um, with the organization um, so that it's it's part of a, an enterprise strategy, then I think it's more successful. So it's, it's important to keep that in mind. Yeah. All right. Wise words from a wise man. Thank you. This, uh... This has been Unstructured Unlocked. I've been your host, Chris Wells. And uh, once again, I want to thank my guest, Menno Hellis. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks, Chris, for having me. Enjoy the rest of your day. All right, you too. Best of luck out there automating everything. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Unstructured Unlocked. You can find all of our episodes wherever you listen to podcasts today. Spotify, Apple, everywhere. Be sure to follow at Indico Data on Twitter and YouTube. Have a good day, Automate.